0: I look okay, I can't even see
1: myself. Oh, you look fantastic. No, your your camera's off, you goofball. Just
0: <laughs> the camera's off. Oh. It's
1: okay. Welcome to You're Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best to love life. And I'm your host, Ford certified female urologist, Dr. Casperson. All right, friends, today I'm so excited to have Dr. Goldstein on our podcast today. He's a gynecologist who specializes in pelvic floor dysfunction, vulvar disorders, and female sexual health and dysfunction. He's an author, an engaging speaker, and a world traveler, well, at least before COVID. You can find him at vulvodynia.com. My story of meeting you is that you're actually friends. You went to college with one of my urology partners. So I had your textbook, the first edition of the female sexual pain disorders on my desk at work. And my partner asked if I wanted it signed. (laughs) I'm like, you know, Dr. Goldstein, you know, he's kind of a big deal. And my partner's like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) because He's known you forever. (laughs) But I love that it's such a small, small world. And now I have an in to be able to talk to you to get you on the podcast. So that's good, too.
0: I'm glad to be here.
1: I'm so excited you're here. So tell us, how did you become an expert in vulvas? And you might need to tell us what the vulva is too.
0: So sure. So the vulva is the external genitals. So the, the labia, what we call the lips, the clitoris, the hood of the clitoris, and the entrance of the vagina called the vestibule. And in fact, the vestibule, the entrance part is where the majority of pain when women have pain with sex. That's For the vast majority of women, that's where the pain occurs. So, how to become a vulvar specialist? That's sort of a long story, but I'll try to cut it down fast. But basically, I finished residency training, which was about 20,000 hours in four years of training, about 100 hours a week. And I knew nothing, nothing, was taught nothing about sexual pain disorders, zero. In that 20,000 hours, I had about a 45-minute long lecture about sex. And, of course, everything about it was wrong. But when I came out of residency, I joined the faculty of Johns Hopkins. And one night I was on call, and the chairman sort of strolled on by. I was a very junior faculty, and he sort of barely knew me. And he said, so, uh, Andrew, uh, what are you interested in? And I'm not exactly sure why I said this. I said, well, maybe female sexual dysfunction. And he looked at me and he said, okay, you're now the Johns Hopkins expert on female sexual dysfunction. And I said, well, I don't know anything. And he goes, nobody knows anything. Go figure it out. And so I thought, and this was about the exact same time Viagra came out. So men had their little blue pill, and women wanted their little pink pill, and so many women were complaining about, you know, what can, what can you do to help my desire? So I thought I was going to open a clinic that was devoted to maybe desire or, or arousal problems, but when you let people know that you are, will treat sexual dysfunction, women who have low desire have low arousal. They're very unhappy, clearly, but women who have sexual pain disorders are really despondent so, I realized very quickly that I had to learn how to treat a vulvar pain disorders, sexual pain disorders.
1: Wow, very cool. And now you've been doing this work for how long?
0: About 23 years.
1: Fantastic. I now realize, like, I've been doing, I've been interested in this area for just a couple of years. And now I know more than most people because, like you said, it doesn't take long. Nobody gets training in this, but I still have so much more to learn. Like, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. <laughs>
0: Well, you, well that, that's very true, and I always worry if if I haven't figured out something new or, or my treatments haven't changed in less in a year or two that I'm that I'm realizing that I'm not growing and and not figuring out new things because clearly we don't get everybody better. I typically say that we get about eighty to eighty five percent of people eighty to eighty five percent better, but that leaves about fifteen to twenty percent of women not getting significantly better. So we're constantly trying to do new things and lots of studies and lots of research to keep pushing the field forward. Now, I have to say that when I started 23 years ago, we were probably getting 50% of people, 50% better. So we're certainly doing a lot better than we were, but we're not there yet.
1: It is a huge problem. The more you start paying attention to it, you realize how big of a problem this is. I was seeing a statistic that 40% of women who suffer from pain with sex won't seek medical care. And most medical professionals still are kind of in the dark when it comes to women's sexual pain. What's your vision for the future of this?
0: Well, I think you have to ask. I mean, if you don't ask, they won't tell. Unfortunately, it's really very common. Actually, if you did, there was a great study that was actually sponsored by Trojan, if you would believe it, makers of the condoms. But if if you did a cross-sectional study of women eighteen to uh, eighty, and basically said the last time you had sex. Did you have pain? You would not believe, but like about thirty-five percent of women said they had some, at least some discomfort the last time they had intercourse. So it's incredibly common, and I think women are told to sort of to grin, you know, or not grin, but I mean to to gnash their teeth and bear it, or they're told that it's supposed to be uncomfortable and and not to complain about it. And so, you know, I think there's a varying degree of how much discomfort women feel, and I think that there's unfortunately this this expectation that when you reach perimenopause or menopause, you're going to have pain and you're just going to have to live with it. And it's absolutely not true. So any pain is wrong, is, is abnormal. And, and again, the vast majority of pain can be, can be treated well.
1: Yeah. I see a lot of women where, you know, they say, Oh, I stopped having sex 15 years ago because it started to hurt. And it's like, I've, we've got to move the needle 15 years after the problem started is too long.
0: Absolutely. Well, and, and, and the other problem is that once, pain, once you start having pain, then you're going to have low desire, you're going to have low arousal, you're going to have a reflex tightening of the pelvic floor muscles, which in itself will cause more pain. And so it becomes a vicious cycle. The more pain you have, the more pain you have, and the less desire you have, and the less arousal you have. And then if you have less arousal, you're going to have more pain. So it's really important to address it early if possible, But if you don't dress it early, you can still fix it. But it's it's peeling away layers of the onion at that point in time. First, you have to address layers of of what's causing the pain. And then often you have to treat the pelvic floor muscles, which have, have reflexively gotten tight. And then you have to work on even when the pain's gone to reawaken desire.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we definitely want to talk about that. Let's talk about your book, When Sex Hurts. Why did you write that book?
0: Well, you were mentioned my textbook, um, female sexual Evaluation of Female Sexual Pain Disorders, and that was written about 10 years ago, the first edition. The, the most recent edition actually came out about a month ago. So we're really excited. And that new edition is about 80% change. So it's really important to realize, again, things are moving fast and things are changing. But we realized that that's a textbook and that's really for medical professionals and very expansive. So we needed a book that had was able to distill all the information in the textbook and that would be more accessible to patients and women and their partners. So we wrote When Sex Hurts right after the first edition of Female Sexual Pain Disorders textbook. We just went straight from the textbook right into writing When Sex Hurts. And in fact, we just finished the second edition, as I said, of Female Sexual Pain Disorders. And we are just now working on the second edition of When Sex Hurts. So that will be coming out in uh, probably late 2022, the second edition. And again, just like the textbook has been about 80% changed. I sort of feel that this new edition is going to be 40 to 60% changed as well.
1: Amazing. That's going to be perfect timing to have you back on the podcast when that book releases too.
0: Yeah, happy to, again, oh, okay. happy to let everyone know out there and in podcast land that the authors of these textbooks and books make no money off this whatsoever. The uh, 100% of the proceeds of the textbook go to a society called the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. And 100% of the proceeds from When Sex Hurts goes to the National Vulvodynia Association. So I can honestly say that we've never made one nickel off these books. And 100% goes back into both research at, at the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health or patient advocacy at the National Vulvodynia Association.
1: Awesome. So let's talk about that. What is Vulvodynia?
0: So the definition of Vulvodynia, Odiné was the Greek goddess of pain. So if you have a dynia, that means you will have an abnormal pain response. So a vulvodynia is an abnormal pain response of the vulva. So now that was a term that was coined about 25, 30 years, actually about 35 years ago now. And so it it was defined as vulvar pain of an unknown cause, meaning we couldn't figure it out. It hurt. And people started treating it such as, as a pain disorder. But I don't use the term vulvodynia that frequently now because, again, that implies that the cause of the pain is unknowable, whereas the majority of the pain that I find vulvar pain actually have a knowable cause. And so we are trying to get you know, less and less people with the diagnosis of vulvodynia, which is an unknown cause and move those women into a category of where we know the cause. So for example, if someone has, you know, they're told they have vulvodynia because they have pain upon penetration and we do an exam and we figure out that it's because they have tight pelvic floor muscles, Well, I no longer call them vulvodynia. I just call them tight pelvic floor muscles, women with tight pelvic floor muscles. If they have a pain at the vestibule, which we call vestibulodynia, but if they have it because they have low hormones, we call it a hormonally mediated vestibulodynia. And now we don't call it vulvodynia, meaning we don't know what was the cause. So I sort of want women to know if they're told they have vulvodynia, and that's all that they're told then that's a little bit like a doctor who's being a little lazy and not being able to figure out or or a little lazy or just doesn't have the knowledge to figure out the cause of the vulvar pain. Now, again, there's still maybe 5% of women where we can't figure out the cause, but that's really, really, really the minority now.
1: Perfect. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, I have ear pain. You don't want to figure out why you have ear pain, right? Not just call it ear pain.
0: Yeah, exactly what you're saying. So if you're walking in the emergency room with chest pain, well, they're going to try to figure out if you're having a heart attack or a panic attack or you have a broken rib. But once they figured out you have a broken rib, they don't just call it. They don't keep calling it. Bro- I mean, you know, chest pain. They keep saying you have a broken rib. So why would we just go back to calling it, you know, just involve our pain of unknown cause? So. Now, again, this is really, really relatively new in in, in terms of medicine, being able to figure this out. Really, it's been the last 20 years. And I think the thing that I'm the most proud of in my entire career is coming up with a diagnostic algorithm that I've now taught to probably 20,000 physicians and have published in all these books about how to figure out the specific causes of pain.
1: Yep. I, I know that flow sheet. I, I actually, in the presentation for women urologists at our society meeting this month, <laughs> I'm doing it with Rachel Rubin and your algorithms in there.
0: Well, I, I appreciate that. Again, I want everyone, I wanted to go out there in the whole world. And, and I often joke that when I go against my algorithm, I'm always wrong. Like <laughs> um, I sort of you know, flippantly say it was divinely inspired. But I mean, it really... It, but the great thing about that algorithm, first of all, it's, it's available for anybody to get. You know, you don't have to buy a book or anything. It's, it's available on my website at vulvodynia.com. And then you go to publications and write the first publication under Volvadinia is that diagnostic algorithm. And that diagnostic algorithm constantly changes. And that's why we have it online, because we're constantly learning constantly figuring out things we're publishing, other people are publishing. And so we constantly update that algorithm. I don't think it's ever gone more than two to three months without it being changed.
1: Love it. Would you say that there's, so say there's a woman who doesn't have access to a doctor who's an expert, or if there's just kind of like, are there any easy fixes for vulvodynia? Like if you're having some pain, are there some things you could try before you then went to see a doctor?
0: Well, if you're just playing the odds, the most common cause of vulvar pain or vulvodynia is overactive or tight pelvic floor muscles. That's about 60% of women who have vulvar pain have overactive pelvic floor muscles. So if you're just playing the odds, that's the most common cause. And you could go to a pelvic floor physical therapist to get that evaluated. Now there's some keys again that you can look under the on the algorithm to maybe think that point you in that direction. If you have tight pelvic floor muscles, you frequently have also other symptoms of tight pelvic floor muscles in the pelvis, such as urinary frequency, the sensations of not completely emptying when you urinate, constipation, rectal fissures. And typically when you have pain upon penetration, it's usually just at the back part of the entrance of the vagina. It's not up towards the urethra or the clitoris. It's just right right in the back. And that's where the muscles attach. So those are a couple of things that could point you in that direction. Again, I, I would recommend going to that algorithm to try to figure out sort of where your pain is. And, and feel free to print that algorithm out and take it to your doctor who may not have been one of those 10,000 people who've listened to my lectures. And maybe they can, if you get someone who's interested, they can go through the diagram with you and figure out exactly that algorithm and what, what's going on and maybe try some of the recommendations in that algorithm.
1: Perfect. That's great advice. Another thing, another condition that you're an expert in is lichen sclerosis. Can you talk a little bit about why lichen sclerosis happens or what it is and then how we go about treating that?
0: Sure. So other than the sort of all the things that used to go under the the heading of vulvodynia, there are skin disorders of the vulva, the genitals, and they can also cause pain with sex, but also without sex anytime. And one of those, the most common skin disorder, which affects about one and a half to 2% of women is a skin disease called lichen sclerosis. And lichen means thick and scaly, and sclerosis means scarring. And so this disease causes the skin of the vulva to thicken, and gets very itchy. And unfortunately, because it's so inflammatory, the vulva scars, so you lose a lot of the architecture. You may, the labia minora may shrink away. We call that resorption. The hood of the clitoris may grow over the the clitoris. It doesn't destroy the clitoris, it just covers the clitoris. And the entrance of the vagina gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And this is an autoimmune disease, which means that your immune system has made a mistake. It thinks that one part of you is not you. It thinks it's a foreign invader. And your immune system and your white blood cells specifically will attack one part of your skin like it would attack a foreign invader. And that causes chronic inflammation. And it's that chronic inflammation that causes the symptoms of lichen sclerosis. As well as the scarring of lichen sclerosis, and in addition, if it's not treated, about five percent of people can develop cancer from that disease. So it happens about one and a half percent of women, and it can happen to females of all ages, prepubertal girls, all the way up to, to the 95, 100. And you know, some doctors sort of mistakenly believe that it's really a disease of menopausal women, but that's really not the case. It can happen from to 95.
1: Does it tend to happen more in low estrogen states?
0: So no, but it is actually more likely to be diagnosed at low estrogen states. So when women are in the reproductive ages, so let's say between 12 and 50, when they're making enough estrogen, the skin is less itchy. And again, this disease, is one of the main symptoms is itching. So if you're not very itchy, you may not get diagnosed. And unfortunately, this is sort of a disease that's caught between two medical specialties or three medical specialties. One, dermatologists who know how to treat skin diseases, but unfortunately, rarely do a genital exam. And gynecologists and urologists who do those types of exams, but unfortunately, haven't been trained in the dermatologic diseases. So unfortunately, it's a really, it's a very, very, very underdiagnosed disorder. So if you read old literature, it will say one in a thousand women have this problem. But then what I think the, my second paper I ever published or about a hundred papers was the prevalence of this disease in the general gynecology population. And the reason I knew a fair amount about it is I'm married to a dermatologist, as you know. And so when, when she would always go to conferences, I would always take the vulvar dermatology conference in these big, large, huge, you know, when they would be giving two or three different hundred courses, I would always be. And so it always would be out 49 dermatologists in a room and one gynecologist. And they would sit there maligning the gynecologist for not knowing anything. And so I said, I'm not going to be one of those gynecologists. So I went back to my general practice before I was a vulvar specialist and I started looking. And I kept seeing this again and again and again, and it made no sense because everyone said it's a rare thing. And I kept saying, "But why do I see it? Like, why am I seeing it every week?" And my patients were quite young because it was—I was a very new physician, so I didn't have many old patients. I had most of them were young women, you know, pregnant. And so if you believe the literature, I should have had no patients with lichen sclerosis, but in fact, 1.7% had it. So, and that was biopsy proven. So probably even higher percentage had it. I um, mean, there's a couple of women who said, no, I don't have a biopsy. So again, very common. One of the things, uh, there's an old joke among vulva dermatologists, I guess, a good friend of mine, her name is Lynn Margerton, is that the vulva is sort of like a, a town in the Midwest. You often drive through it, but you rarely stop. And gynecologists sort of sort of treat the vulva as something to separate so they can put in a speculum and do a pap smear. So it's also been called the forgotten, uh, pelvic organ. You know, it's the most visible pelvic organ yet at the same time it really is, it has the least amount of literature and research about it.
1: Yeah. I see a lot of people where they, they come to me and they say, well, they, my gynecologist told me it's normal or my primary care told me it's normal. And you just, I just don't believe it anymore. You just do an exam and you're like, nah, it's not normal.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, really. I mean, it's it's you know, you go like, oh my God, do you, have, you know, you have there's nothing there. You know, none of your architecture is normal, and yeah. they would say, oh yeah, I had a Pap smear a month ago or six weeks ago, and and you sort of shake your head. And that's why though that the sort of the the average age of diagnosis of of lichen sclerosis is fifty one, which ironically, of course, is the average age of menopause. So as soon as women stop making estrogen they become itchy, and then they show up to their doctor. But they had it in their 20s and 30s and their 40s. And maybe their only symptoms then were pain with sex.
1: Interesting. Yeah, it's surprising how many people come to me and they've got they've been put on steroid creams for their lichen sclerosis, but they've not been put on estrogen cream for their vulva or their vagina. And then the other thing that, that I want you to talk about, not only that, is that people just use the estrogen cream for a really short period of time, and then they stop.
0: Right. As a urologist, you realize that we're not just treating the vagina when we're, when we're using menopausal uh, hormone replacement therapy. We're treating the urethra and we're treating the bladder. All of these are hormone-dependent organs. And I think a famous actress just died a couple of days ago, and I don't remember her name, but she died of urosepsis, which means that she got a bladder infection that went to her kidneys. And then that infection went to her bloodstream and killed her. Well, the reason that happens in menopausal age women is because they don't have estrogen. And normally the urethra, as you know, is a, is a tube that has mucosa in it so that the bacteria can get up through the tube, but without hormones, without estrogen, the tube, it becomes like a straw. And so bacteria easily ascend into the bladder, then get to the kidneys and, And that's why a leading cause of death of elderly people, especially in nursing homes, is actually urosepsis. So it's really important. Now, the other thing to realize is that this whole thing called menopause—you know, menopause—menopausal symptoms such as hot flashes, night sweats; those things may last one or two years, but menopause lasts a lifetime, and unfortunately. Mother nature evolution doesn't care about the sex life or the the life of the menopausal woman, unfortunately. And so if you don't treat women with hormones, then the organs that are hormonally dependent really start to function poorly. And again, it's not just the vagina. It's not just the vulva, but the urethra and the bladder. And I know you're preaching to the choir when I, when I talk about this.
1: But every time we talk about it, other people hear it. Right. And it's so good for, for either other providers and for patients to get empowered, to be like, I heard to me that vaginal estrogen is like sunscreen and seatbelts. It's just preventative maintenance.
0: Preventative, preventative maintenance, you know, you know, this living to eighties, nineties, hundreds—you know—I think that um, they say that fifty percent of people born today will live to be one hundred and four, but that's unnatural. You know, when this country was founded, the average life expectancy was about thirty-seven, and only about one in ten persons lived past the age of fifty. So this, I, so living past menopause was what was unnatural.
1: Yeah. And I love that. You know, I live in the Pacific Northwest, so we tend to, we tend to pride ourselves on natural out here and people are like, well, I don't want to take estrogen because it's, it's not natural. And I'm like living in past 50 is not natural.
0: That's exactly correct. Yeah.
1: In addition, you have shoes on your feet, which aren't natural, but it sure does make walking a lot nicer.
0: Well, see, I'm not going to, you know, you live in Pacific Northwest, so I'm not going to say this, but when people say I only like natural things, I said in August, I'm going to come to your house and get rid of your air conditioner because I'm in the sweaty mid-Atlantic region.
1: That's a good one. The other thing is driving cars. Like you drove a car to come and see me. Yep. Cars aren't natural. Mm-hmm. We do it all the time. So I, I can break down that natural argument super fast.
0: And now I have to say that you said something to you said something that I don't completely agree with, which is you said vaginal estrogen. Mm. You've forgotten an incredibly important hormone called testosterone.
1: Let's talk about it. People love it when I talk about testosterone.
0: Thank God, because testosterone is as important for women's health as is estrogen. Now that may shock someone. Oh, my God. Well, men, only men have testosterone. Women don't. Well, if I took 100 gynecologists and put them in a room and I asked them a very simple question, a 25-year-old woman, does she have more estrogen or more testosterone, I would tell you that about 95% of those gynecologists would be incorrectly answering that more women have more estrogen than they have testosterone. But that is completely wrong. Women have about 10 times the amount of testosterone than they have estrogen. Now. That's still about one thirteenth 13th the amount of testosterone that men have, so that's why men are so stupid. But at the same time, Testosterone is incredibly important, not just for sex drive, what a lot of people may uh, associate it with, but for lean muscle mass, So, which is incredibly important for metabolism. And as testosterone goes down, that's why a lot of women get fat around the middle and then why they start developing metabolic syndrome and why they start to develop diabetes. It's incredibly important for bone health. Um, it's incredibly important for nerve conduction. As you know, there's almost no organ in the body that doesn't have a testosterone receptor. And if there's a testosterone receptor there, that means it's important for the health of that tissue. So it is incredibly important. Now, when we talk about the vagina and the vulva, the entrance of the vagina, the vestibule is in fact only is 95% androgen or testosterone-dependent tissue, and especially the glands at the opening of the vagina. Those are completely testosterone-dependent glands. So if you just get vaginal estrogen after menopause, what happens is, yes, sex may become less painful, but what happens is you still don't have arousal, meaning you don't lubricate. In addition, you still have much less sensation because the nerves that go to the vulva and the clitoris are testosterone dependent. So yeah, you may have less painless sex, but you don't have good sex. So I would encourage all women out there to if you're really going to get adequate hormone replacement, especially local in the vulva and the vagina, it should be estrogen and testosterone, not just estrogen. Unfortunately, there's no products available that are FDA approved for this. So you have to get a compounded medication. But that's OK. That's OK. And it's important to realize that, that, that compound medication should have 10 times the amount of testosterone than estrogen just like it would before you were menopausal.
1: Oh, perfect. Let's, let's, let's take that and talk about how hormonal birth control affects hormones in women. And we can tie that into good sex. We can tie that into pain with sex. Let's hear about how hormonal birth control messes with our hormones.
0: Ah, It sure does, unfortunately. Now, again, everybody's different and everyone's idiosyncratic. So a lot of women who take birth control pills do perfectly fine. But understand the way birth control pills work. You know, Women say, well, I'm taking hormones, so how could it lower my hormones? That doesn't make any sense. Well, what happens is when you take birth control pills, effectively what it does is it turns off the ovaries. And it's because it's sort of screwing around with the signals that are coming from your brain. And so those it turns off the signals from your brain, which normally make you tell your ovaries to make estrogen and testosterone and progesterone. So though even though you're taking hormones every month that you're on birth control pills, you're actually at a hormonal deficit. Now, what's important, and so when people say, Well, I am just taking a low dose. Well, in fact, when you take a low dose, that means you are at even a greater deficit. So every month you're taking a pill, you're digging yourself a hole, a ditch, as to the amount of normal hormones that you would have. Now, it is especially bad for the hormone testosterone. We just talked about how important testosterone is. Well, What happens is birth control pills lower testosterone specifically by doing two different things. Number one, they lower the production of testosterone from the ovaries. As important as that is that birth control pills cause the liver to make a protein called sex hormone binding globulin. And that binds on to what little testosterone is still being made and it makes it inactive. So that's a double whammy. The total amount of testosterone has been decreased. And then whatever little bit still left over is now bound to a protein, making it inactive. Additionally, there are some birth control pills, in most commonly in the, in the ones called Yaz or Yasmin, that have a triple whammy in that the progesterone component of the birth control pills actually poisons the testosterone receptor. And so that is now the progesterone is called drospirinone, which is very, very similar to a medication called spironolactone that a lot of women take for either hair loss or acne. Again, so so that medicine, spironolactone, can also do the same thing. And so what happens is that the loss of total testosterone because you've shut down the ovaries and then the buildup of this binding hormone. And so it really lowers testosterone. So though every woman who was on birth control pills, everyone on birth control pills has at least a 75% reduction in total of testosterone available to the body. Now, if you have too much testosterone, let's say you have really bad acne. Well, that's really, that can be very beneficial because lower your testosterone and the acne gets better. But if you're not if you're not a person who has way too much testosterone to begin with, then the birth, these birth control pills can be really bad. One of the I guess my some of my favorite research that I've done is trying to figure out which women will suffer from birth control pills and which women do okay after while taking birth control pills, and that's really related to their genetics. And the genetics about that is that everyone is born with a what is called an androgen receptor or a testosterone receptor. It's what the testosterone binds to on the surface of the cell, and that will cause the cell to make the proteins such as that make lubrication and other things. Well, this hormone receptor can either be efficient or inefficient. That means if it's efficient, that means you don't need much testosterone to bind to that receptor to make it work. But if you have an inefficient receptor, you need tons of the testosterone. So it's the people who are born with inefficient receptors because of their genetics are the people who will suffer. And the problem with this, of course, is that you don't know, and I you know, I don't know what my our, our, the androgen receptors are like. Are you, do you have an efficient one? Do you have an inefficient one? Well, we don't know. So it's sort of playing Russian roulette when you take birth control pills.
1: To clear up a, a, something I don't understand. So if a woman's in early menopause or she's having like early, me- her symptoms aren't that bad, but she knows she's going into it. I see them be put on low dose birth control for quote unquote early menopause. To me, it seems like it contradicts the like you're actually blocking hormones. Can you explain the low dose birth control for early menopause thing?
0: Well, what it does is it's smooth. I mean, one of the things about perimenopause is not that the average amount of hormones are much lower, it's that the swings are much higher. And it's those swings, especially at the brain, are what typically cause what we think the hot flash response.
1: Somebody described perimenopause as like reverse puberty because of the swings and the hormones that that happen.
0: Right. So if you go on birth control pills again, you're going to lower the hormones, but it's going to be a much steadier level. So you're not going to get those swings because you're preventing the ovaries from doing this. But I don't agree with that. I would prefer that we then just add some estrogen so that even when you go down, it doesn't go down enough to cause those hot flashes and the swings. So you can do the same thing, but instead of lowering total hormone levels, You just raise them again when you add just estrogen, as opposed to the birth control pill. If you add a little bit of supplemental estrogen, you can get rid of the symptoms, but not uh, put yourself in a ditch. It just doesn't seem like it makes it makes very good sense.
1: Okay, that's I'm understanding a little better.
0: Now the other thing about it is that it can a lot of things about perimenopause. You get heavy bleeding and the, the cycles are irregular and the birth control pills can control that a little better than just adding supplemental estrogen but we can also add supplemental progesterone as well and do it again do it in, in ways that are probably additive and then instead of subtractive when it comes to hormones and therefore keeping the tissues healthier
1: Perfect. That makes tons of sense. So I have one more question on our pelvic pain segment. And then our next podcast, we'll talk about desire because I'm excited to get to that. But my last question is what's the role of trauma and abuse and kind of shame in a woman's pelvic pain?
0: Well, we, we certainly know that women who have pelvic pain, there's a higher percentage of women who have had abuse history in women who have chronic pelvic pain. But I want to say that it's not the majority of people who have pain. And so it became this thing that a lot of doctors would say, "Oh, well, well, you're acting like this. You must have been abused." And women would go, I, "I didn't. I wasn't abused." And in fact, and they would say, "Well, you just don't remember it." So you know, again, attack, attacking the patient it's terrible. Or, and it's also possible that the abuse has absolutely nothing to do with the cause of the pain or the pain. So. Whereas statistically, women who have abuse have a higher percentage of chronic pelvic pain. It's not the majority, and it's so even though, and it also may not be causative, even if you have been the victim of abuse. The method in which the abuse may cause a pain is typically the overactive pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. Again, if you're subject to chronic pain or chronic assault, a very natural inclination would be to tighten up your muscles. And so once the muscles are tight, then it causes pain upon penetration, and that causes a vicious cycle, which perpetuates the pain. But I think it's really important to not equate people who have pelvic pain with people who, are, who have been abused, because many have not been.
1: I think that's really helpful and helps clear that up for a lot of people because I think that is kind of an old wives tale at this point, which it's good to kind of clear the air on that. Thank you so much. We're going to come back next week and talk about desire, which I'm super excited about. Thanks.